0: All right. So, from uh, from me hearing y'all singing this morning, it's clear that y'all are ready to worship. Uh, so, I want y'all to make sure, uh, as I often warn you, that your that your loins are girded. Um, this is this is a uh, this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Um, it's ten forty five. We could uh, we could be here for some time. So, just I hope you had your bathroom break and everything. Um, and we can we can get this we can get this party started. So brothers and sisters, I'm I'm really into superpowers. My favorite dream of all time was back in third grade when I dreamed that I had Spider-Man's powers, and it was wonderful. And every dream since then, I have tried to have to have Spider-Man's powers. But as I got older, I found out that superpowers are actually real. You have people like ultramarathoner Dean Karnazes whose body, because of his genetics, it clears lactate from his, bo- from, from his blood to energy super efficiently. So what does that mean? It means that hypothetically, this guy can run forever and not get tired. He gets sleepy, but his muscles don't give out. Like, it, they, they, they don't get sore. And so he ran 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. He ran 350 miles straight in 81 hours without sleep. The only reason that he stopped was because he was hallucinating from sleep deprivation. <laughs> he ran 3,000 miles from Disneyland to New York City in 75 days, just running 40 or 50 miles a day. That could not be me. <laughs> and if you want to see more people, if you want to see more people like like Dean, I suggest you look up Stanley's Superhumans. It was a, it was it's a it's a TV show, um, but it's on YouTube. It's amazing. But maybe you didn't hit the genetic lottery. Are there other real-life opportunities for superpowers? Well, yeah, but some of them aren't particularly safe. There are other stories of people with superhuman abilities, feats of super strength, supernatural knowledge. Modern examples include things like telekinesis or levitation. What could give these people these kinds of supernatural abilities? Well, in some cases, supernatural forces. We're not talking about medical or psychiatric conditions. We're talking about, like, demonic possession, which I know none of y'all actually think about besides horror movies and maybe the last Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. <laughs> but, it, but it's real. And, and, and you may ask, it's a, this is a sermon series on the Gospel of John. Why, why talk about superpowers and demons? Well, dear interlocutor, I want us to know one thing about the Gospel of John, that it is a cosmic gospel. You guys know that I I love to talk about the gospel as personal, communal, and cosmic. Well, we're going to get real deep into the cosmic today. So cosmic comes from the Greek word cosmos. Somebody say cosmos, which means the world. So so every time that you hear the words the world in the Gospel of John, and you're going to hear it a lot, you're hearing the word cosmos. And so you're hearing not just about the people in the world, but you're hearing about the whole world order, the whole order of creation itself. And that's the narrative that we're aching for. We look at the world around us and we wonder, is this, is this it? It's one, I, I think it's one of the things that actually makes superhero movies so popular. And I'm, I'm gonna see Shang-Chi very, very soon. We yearn for a hero, perhaps even to be a hero well, here's a real hero for you. Because what this gospel is about is a breaking in. Some might say an invasion. But I wouldn't call it an invasion because the so-called intruder is the one whose house it really is. This gospel is about the Son of God's embodied entrance into the world that he created. It's about when human beings were able to touch, smell, and walk around with God. And it's about what that means for you and your life because this gospel is addressed to those who are dead and those who are shrouded in darkness. This gospel is addressed to those who know that there's a bigger story than what they see. This, this is a gospel that's addressed to those who, like Belle and Beauty and the Beast, saying there must be more than this provincial life. There is. There's a cosmic one. Please stand for the reading of God's word, John 1, 1 to 18.
1: There we go. There we go. John 1, 1 through 18, NIV. The Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And Lord, as we, as we meditate on your word this morning, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would floor us floor us with your glory. I pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. This is, this is probably, it's probably the case that this is like the hardest sermon I've ever had to preach because I love this text so much. And, and there's also a lot going on. And so if you have, so if you have questions about, about a verse that we didn't end up talking about, let's talk about it. But I'm gonna hit you with highlights, if that's all right. We're gonna talk about three things today. Who the gospel is about, what this person did, and why this person did the thing that he did. And the, and the thread that's gonna go through this is the, is the cosmic nature of this person's work and person. So. One of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, reflected for a while on why there might be four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them tells the story of Jesus, but each has their distinct emphases. Irenaeus would connect them to the mystical creatures in Revelation 4-7. So there's a picture, uh, there's a picture that's going to come up on the slide. Yes, that is what's called a tetramorph. So what it is, is it's the, so there are, so there are four mystical creatures in Revelation 4-7 that surround Christ's throne. One looks like a man, one looks like a lion, one looks like a calf, and one looks like an eagle. And so Jerome, a few centuries later, would, would come along and link, and, link those, and link those animals. He linked those animals to the four gospels. And then in this, and then in this artistic re- r- r- representation, they would put them all together into one figure. And so Matthew was the man because the gospel begins with the genealogy. Mark was the lion, because his gospel begins with the prophetic roaring of John the baptizer in the wilderness. Luke was the calf, because his gospel narrative begins in the temple with the sacrifice. But John, John was the eagle, because his gospel's introduction soars above the others. And you can see it in this text. It's an incredibly rich text. And so I want to take a look at where it begins. It begins in the beginning. If you were with us in our Genesis series, you might notice that the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of this particular book are the same two, they're the same two words if you you look at the Greek, it's n-r-k, in the beginning. In Genesis, it begins with an action. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. In John, it begins with a person. In the beginning was the word. And there are two words that we have to understand in that verse. We have to understand what's going on in beginning and word. That the beginning here is the beginning of time. And it's important to know that when time begins, God is already there. He doesn't come into being, He just always was. That's what's called divine eternity. In the beginning was the word. And those are the kinds of words that we are used to hearing when it comes to talking about God. God is. God was. God will be. It's it's part of the divine name. The divine name that we talk about as Yahweh means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. Like that's what we're used to. when, When we're thinking about God, we're thinking about a God who doesn't change. So he is. He was. He will be. Well, apparently... So was this word. But what does, that, what, what does that word mean? What does it mean? What, who are we talking about when we're talking about the word? The word is our translation of the Greek word logos. Somebody say logos. It's where we get the word logic. The church fathers picked up on this, that the word is the logic of the universe. It's the reason of the universe. The, it, this, this word is the one who upholds it, who keeps it going. That word logos also means speech. The best way to understand it is to understand God's word as the way that he reveals himself. And so that's what we talk about when we're talking about the written word, the scriptures. It's what we understand when we read the prophets say that the word of the Lord came to them. God communicates himself and about himself through his word. I mean, it's the same thing that you do. For someone to really know about you, you've got to tell them, right? But John continues. The word was with God or in God's face. Now we got a problem because because this word is, is, the way that John's framing it, the word is actually distinguishable from God. So it's like you saying something about yourself and that thing that you've just said is now a person. Like, that's weird. I want us all to understand that We've just started the book, and we're already saying very, very strange things. Okay, so just hope we're all on the same page about that. So let's keep keep going, because John's not done blowing your mind, because then he continues to say the Word was God. Now, this right here is a distinctive of Orthodox Christianity. You guys may not know this about me, but I am yearning for the day when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house, and try and try to convert. I'm 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 just waiting. Like there's a there's a there's a heresy hunter within me that's just unhealthily just itching, itching for that moment. And, and 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 it's because it's because when they see when they see this verse, they interpret it to mean that that the word was divine, that the word was god-like, or maybe the word was one of the gods. And I, I and let me and let me be clear, y'all, because that's that's not enough. And that's, not, and that's not what John is saying. So Cyril, Cyril of Alexandria, one of my favorite Greek church fathers, says this about John. He says, With clear sight and a keen mind, John inspects the prickly growths of evil that arise from the heterodox. And he runs at them full speed, so to speak, and wastes no time cutting them down from every direction. Especially in speaking to an audience with Jewish roots. Something that's clear from the way that this text is soaked in the Old Testament. John knows that he's saying something radical here. He's talking to a fiercely monotheistic people. He's talking to a people whose very heritage is bound up in the refusal of false gods and idols. Yahweh is the only true God. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then John says, okay, well, but i also got this word that's eternal, like God. This word is also in the face of God, so he's distinct from God. But also this word is God. That's only two verses of this this book, y'all. Like this, like... (laughs) And and John's not going to let us breathe because then he continues, and and in verse verse 3 he says... Everything was made by him, and apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. So the reader knows that if you've read the Old Testament, there are only two types of being. There's creator, and there's creature. And this word is clearly in the creator category. And that's just the intro. Like, that's, that's the who. Like, these first three verses, we've got these tremendous claims. So we know that this person is known as the Word, and we know that this Word is apparently God what's so great about this person? John still has to tell us what it is that this Word has actually done. How do we we even know these things about this character called the Word? Well, I'm going to jump to the most surprising verse of this chapter and the summary verse, what, what Calvin calls the unutterable mystery. It's verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word became flesh. Or maybe even more controversially, the, the word began to be flesh. The word became a human being. You remember at the beginning, we're used to hearing words about God, like God is, God was, God will be, God doesn't change. And yet this, what, this, what this verse is saying is that the word, this, this word who has revealed himself to also be God is becoming something. As in, I can go back to a point in time in which I can say something, I, I can say God is something, and then, the ne- and then the next moment, specifically after the conception of Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary, I can say God is this, in a way that he was not a few seconds before. Like, this, like... Okay, that's, that's all, right. all right. look The God of the universe who created the universe is fully stepping into it as an inhabitant of it. The one who exists outside of time has stepped fully into time. Jesus, a, a, a Jewish man who was born to a young Virgin Mary more than 2,000 years ago, was not just some dude. He was, is, and continues to be the eternal Word of God. Athanasius said it. Athanasius said it, said it, said it, said it best. He said, he said, The Word was not hedged in by his body. Nor did his presence in the body prevent his being present elsewhere as well. When he moved his body, he did not cease also to direct the universe by his mind and might. At one and the same time, this is the wonder. As man, he was living a human life. And as word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. And as son, he was in constant union with the father. He sanctified the body by being in it. Look, y'all just look. All right. Uh, verses, <laughs> verses 9 to 11. He keeps going. Like this, this, this is the wonderful thing about these verses. He keeps going. Verses 9 through 11 describe more of what this word did. It says, The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, that's a devastating verse, y'all. Before, before my dad got his, got his current job, he was, he was working all the time, and it, was, and it was the first few years of my sister's life. And so there, there, there was a stretch of him going to work early and coming home late. And so, and so he came home early one evening, especially to say hi to his new, to his new daughter, who, who he'd held in his arms when she was born and who seemed to recognize him even then. But that day when he came home, she wailed. She was inconsolable. She did not know who this man was that entered into the house. And that broke my dad's heart. And that's one of the things that's actually terrified me. Like, I, I, I never I never want to come home to little baby Jasmine and have her not recognize who I am. Like that's that's a terrifying thing for me to think of. Now, I want you to consider the Lord. Consider the entirety of the Old Testament. Consider the Lord delivering the people out of Egypt. Consider him preserving them through the time of the judges. Consider him giving them relative stability in the reign of the monarchs. Consider him him maintaining them throughout the exile. Consider him sending prophet after prophet after prophet to give the promise, I love you, I'm going to redeem you, and also that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming, and then the Messiah comes to nothing, to no fanfare. Not just no fanfare, but he comes to a people who not only don't recognize him, but who seek to kill him because they think he's a blasphemer. Consider that as we go through this book together, that he came to his own people and they didn't receive him. There's a recent uh, First First Nations translation um, of this, of of the scriptures, and, and this verse reads, even his own tribe did not welcome or honor him. He returned to his hood, and their response was, you're looking real unfamiliar right now. And even through all of this, there's another thing that the word did. Even in the midst of the mind-blowing act of becoming a human being, even in the midst of being misunderstood, he does this in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. The word, the son, Jesus Christ explains God to you. The author of Hebrews describes Christ as the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And so that just means that if you want to know God, you've got to look at Jesus. It means that if you want to know how God feels about the poor, you look at Jesus who tossed tables in the temple because the poor were being exploited. It means that if you want to know how God would have you treat the men and women in your midst, you look at Jesus. You look at the love that he exhibited. You look at the dignity that he affirmed in all those whom he met. If you, if you want to know who Jesus is, then you look at Jesus and you're going to find not a contradiction of the revelation that came before Jesus, but the culmination of it. You're, 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 what, you're, what you're hearing are the outlines of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that is world altering. The fact that the son of God became human is a legitimately mind shattering thing. And if you're a Christian, that ought to never become mundane. I'm just saying, just throwing that out there. Like this is not, this is a big deal if anything at all, ever, is a big deal. Like, this is a big deal. So, 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 so this Son of God comes into the world, and, 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 and he fully reveals God. But why, why would he do something like that? We now know that this gospel is about this word, the Son, Jesus Christ, the, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, the light of the world and the life of all human beings, the one through whom we know God and by whom we live. Cool, got it. Why make such a big deal about it? Like, why should, I, why should I care? Why should you care? Why make a big deal about it, you ask? Why this particular act of becoming flesh? The Nicene Creed, which we confessed earlier, actually says why uh, in a few phrases that you might have read through rather quickly. Why did the Son of God become human? For, for us humans and for our salvation. Now, those are actually two different reasons. Those two reasons are to be our light and to be our life, to be revelation and our salvation, because we need to be illuminated and rejuvenated. The scriptures are clear that this cosmic plan is distinctively for us, like for us human beings, like in a way that it's not for animals, or for angels, or for plants, whatever. It's for you, as a human being. Because what sets you apart, what set us apart in creation, was that we were created for union and communion with God. That's, this is the gospel, that God created us for communion with him. And when we broke that trajectory with our sin, the Lord said, no, 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 no. Like, you're not going to mess up my plan. So now I got another thing coming. Now I'm going to have to come down personally. I'm not going to send anybody else. I'm going to come down myself because this you are my people, and I am going to be your God. And dear brother and dear sister, that has always been the goal. From Genesis to Revelation, we're reading a Bible that is all about God saying, I'm going to be with you, and we're running the other way. And he's like, no, 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 no. The incarnation is the midpoint of that story. The top of the mountain, the, the cosmic intervention that sets history aright. The Son of God becomes man because he sees us fumbling around in the dark. Thinking that we know him, thinking that we know the way to live, thinking that we know the way forward. And it's important to understand that this act is a supreme act of grace. John says this in, in, in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. This is one of the reasons I, 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 love, the, I love the NIV in this, in this chapter because verses 16 and 17 really draws it out. He says this, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what John is saying there is that, is that the law was the way in which God graciously revealed himself to his people in the old covenant. So he's like, this is what sets you apart from the rest of the world. I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to tell you the way that I want you to live. I'm going to tell you what a relationship with me looks like. I'm going to give you the sacrificial system. This is a gift of my grace. It is... It is One of the things that frustrates me to no end is the way, it it really does, is is when people frame the law of God as an obstacle or as a bad thing that is fundamentally contrary to what the Scripture says about the law. It is a gift of God's grace. It's a gift of God's grace that he tells us, this is the way that I want you to live. Yes, we fail, but he, by his spirit, equips us to actually obey him. And it's good for us. And this is what John is saying, that that is a grace. But in this new covenant, he has revealed himself through his beloved son, in whom we find grace and truth. Dear brother, dear sister, you are invited to get to know the living God. He became a human being for us but he also became a human being for our salvation because we need to be saved from our sin, which has separated us from our creator. Our sin has put us on a trajectory toward hell, toward damnation, toward eternal separation from God, but we don't have to wait until then to get those consequences because our sin has personal, communal, and cosmic effects. Sin has broken our relationships, it's broken, it's broken ourselves, it's torn our world apart, and all of creation groans because of what we've done. And Christ's redemption has to touch all of it. In 1892, my my personal hero, anti-lynching activist, Ida B. Wells, in in resistance to the gruesome and widespread American phenomenon of racialized lynching, she said, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. Her, her, her words echo John 1, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And those words echo Genesis 1. Because what's the first thing that God, does and God says in creation? He says, let there be light. And he saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. The darkness that, according to the scriptures, hovered over the face of the waters. But the point that the apostle John and the activist Ida are making is a slightly different one. Because, brothers and sisters, we live in a world of darkness, a world of death, of confusion, of injustice. We, 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 when we, if we consider our days, they're filled with new challenges, new responsibilities, but I'll bet something else is true. I'll bet you and I don't really know how to deal with those things. We don't really know how to raise our kids, we're just making it up, making it up as we go. We don't really know how to love our neighbors, we're sometimes just kind of making it up as we go. We don't know whether we're supposed to move cities or not. If there's one thing that we all have in common, it's probably just an almost oppressive air of uncertainty. This is not almost oppressive, it's like actively overwhelming. <laughs> and on top of that uncertainty, which is a kind of darkness, there's also the presence of active evil. Murder, sexual assault, lying, cheating, theft, drunkenness, pride, envy, lust, the list goes on. And when John refers to the light shining in the darkness, he's talking about the eternal son of God breaking into a sinful cosmos, a cosmos of overwhelming evil and uncertainty, the cosmos in which we live, the cosmos that overwhelms us. When we look around at a country where racial hate crimes are on the rise, especially against our black and Asian brothers, sisters, and neighbors, as we look around in a state where immigrants are regularly treated like and spoken of as parasites. I think of a billboard I see every time I drive up to the airport of a candidate for governor saying, stop giving illegals our money as we look around in a city whose healthcare system is overwhelmed in the midst of a global pandemic, as we look around at our households that can often be filled with chaos, as we look in our own hearts, where if we spend too much time looking, we'll notice how little love of God and love of neighbor actually fills our days. Death, dehumanization, and darkness basically are our world. But the Son of God knows that. And he knows it deeper than you do. When you have grieved, he has grieved all the more. Because because death, dehumanization, and darkness are disorienting to us. But they're fundamentally opposed to who the God of the Scriptures is. We're talking about a God who is light and a God who is life. When he comes into contact with darkness and death and dehumanization, there's there's just something that just wells up in him contrary to those things. And so he shines in the midst of it. And as John reminds us, the darkness did not, has not, and will not overcome him. Because, Because because the God who the Word, the Son, Jesus Christ, reveals is a God of comprehensive justice and of holistic salvation. He's a God who cares about your body and your soul. And quite frankly, that's the only God I have any time getting, that I want to spend any time getting to know. And that is the God that Jesus reveals. And, and, and you know what the best part about this, about this revelation is? The best part of this illumination and salvation it's that this God actually desires to share his glory with his people. We talked about superpowers at the beginning. Part of what we yearn for as human beings is significance. Or said another way, one of the things that we yearn for is glory. We just spend a lot of our time trying to get it for ourselves. But this is why John refers to Moses in this passage. We know Moses as the one who led the Israel, who, who, who led Israel out, of, out of Egyptian slavery, but also Moses is the lawgiver who asked to see God's glory on top of Mount Sinai. you got to hear this story. It's in Exodus 33, 18 to 23. Moses says, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back but my face must not be seen. Do do you get the weight of that passage? There and throughout the scriptures, God is far too much for our weak minds to handle. Like they would shatter and break, and we'd fall to the ground a mess. I think of a scene of the the anime Yu-Gi-Oh!, where, where he reaches out and mind-crushes people, and there's, like, 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 the screen shatters and all that, and they, the person falls to the ground. Like, that's essentially what would happen, but even worse if we actually saw the face of God. And so, what does God do? He appears to us fully in a way that we can understand, as one of us. He doesn't send an angel to tell us stuff. God the Father sends God, sends God the Son And in that way, John can declare alongside the disciples, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in seeing God's glory, Christ makes us like himself. That's a lot. But illumination and salvation are really, really important. The Son reveals to us who God is, And so if you want to know who God is, you look at the scriptures and you look at Jesus because that's all you've got. Not not who you or I want God to be, but who he tells us he is. He's a father to the fatherless. He's comfort for the morning. He's woe to the wicked, freedom for the oppressed, strength for the weak, and joy for the downcast. He's the one who upholds the universe, yet who also stoops to comfort his abused and afflicted children. He's the almighty Lord of hosts, who also stoops to heal and to reconcile. He's the God of the cosmos, yet he also wishes to be personally and communally related to you. So what do we do with all that, dear brother and dear sister? Two verses in this chapter lay that out. Verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Children born not of blood. Not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of a husband, but born of God. So joining the family of God is not a natural thing like any of our births were, the fruit of a man and a woman, the fruit of human decision. No, being born of God by grace is another thing entirely, and it's a different kind of family. And we all want family, we all want to belong, we all want to be loved. Some, some of us probably have some pretty, some pretty dysfunctional families. Some of us may have folks with whom we have shared a, a house or an apartment with growing up, but besides that, may not have much in common. Some of these folks in our families might even say that they're Christian, but when we look to the character and priorities of Christ, we might not see the kind of matchup that we would expect. And if there's one thing that really messes with you, one thing that really just, just, just messes with your identity, the way that you see yourself, is family issues. I mean, if a stranger comes at you, I mean, you can, you can brush that off. If a friend comes at you, like, it hurts, but, I mean, you can deal with that. But family? If your mother or your father or your sister or your brother comes at you and comes at your very core, some, some people don't survive that. Those are the kinds of wounds that cut the deepest And so we all yearn for a family that envelops us, that cares for us, that sees our flaws but doesn't excommunicate us for them, but walks alongside us in the midst of them. Well, brothers and sisters, that's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. For a while, the most salient image of the the body of Christ was for me uh, an army. That's why I love saying gird your loins. I'm like, it's for going into battle. But like but that's that that's that's not that's not actually the most that's not actually the most powerful image image of the body of Christ. Yes, yes, the, the, yes, we're engaged in constant kind of spiritual warfare. But our elder brother Jesus has already won the war. He's already beat sin. He's already beat death. He's already beat the devil. In taking on flesh, in living a perfect life in full accordance with the law, a gift of God's grace, in dying on the cross, and in being raised from the dead, he dealt our enemies a death blow that they cannot and will not recover from. Now, dear brother, dear sister, if you are in Christ, if you believe in his name, you are members of a family. A family committed to the building up of one another in Christ. A family committed to the binding of wounds. A family committed to the alleviation of one another's needs. A family committed to the worship of a good, good God. That's what the prologue in the Gospel of John is broadly about. It's about a God who decided that alongside his natural son, he would also gather a larger family of sons and daughters by grace. It's about how this natural son, the Word, became a human being to be both light and life to the darkened and the dead. It's about how this son, by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection, has reconciled you and I to God, and what a life in union with Christ looks like. This is a cosmic story, a story about how you fit in the world. And so as we go through this book together, consider that. How how do we fit in the story of Christ's cosmic redemption? Do you want to be truly enlightened? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Believe in him. Place your trust in him. You want to know what real life is? Eternal life? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Do you want to know what what real family can be? Turn to the God who runs to you with open arms, ready to forgive you of your sin and shape you in holiness. Do you want to know what your place is in a story that doesn't just involve you and your community, but the entire cosmos? Turn to the cosmic Christ. Believe in him. Place your trust in his name and listen to him. Come, all you who are weary and he will give you rest. Pray with me.